Good afternoon and welcome to HIT Policy Update, a Health System CIO Media Inc. production. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra. I'm the moderator of today's event. I'm the editor-in-chief of Health System CIO. We're looking forward to some audience participation today, so send your questions or comments in in the Q&A box as they occur to you. We'll take them later in the program. Nice way to view the screen today. You can click on the top center, get it in side-by-side -side mode, adjust the divider to get the video boxes and the slides the size you like, and it should say speaker view in the top right-hand corner. Just so you see how we're going to spend our time today, we're going to go about 30 minutes with our main presentation featuring Dr. John Halamka, president of the Mayo Clinic platform, and then we will do our Q&A. So without further delay, I'm going to turn it over to our very good friend, Dr. John Halamka. Dr. Halamka, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much, Anthony. And uh, before we started the program, Anthony, I had to sort of chat about the state of the world. And I say, you know, I feel as we approach Thanksgiving, the strangest mix of mixed emotions I have ever felt. So on the one hand, we are seeing great science producing levels of cures and potential vaccine candidates at an accelerated rate that far exceeds anything in human history. But at the same time, we're seeing a pandemic surge that exceeds anything we've experienced before. We're seeing hospital capacity stretched to its limits. We're seeing burnout of our caregivers. We're seeing supply chain challenges as we did back in March and April. But I guess the one hope that I see, despite the fact that there are these ups and downs in the roller coaster, is that all of us have come together. And what I'm describing to you today, as I look through some of the HIT updates, some of the policies in progress, it's truly bipartisan. It's academic industry and government stakeholders coming together for the benefit of all. So if there's one silver lining in this pandemic, it's that there has been an urgency for all of us to put aside some competitive differences and to work together as we will get through this. I know, especially as we approach a Thanksgiving that may be very small, in fact, very isolating, and your family members may enjoy that meal together by Zoom alone, there is a lot of reason for optimism. And so let's go through where we've been and where we're going on the COVID technology and policy front. And I'll also make some comments about some emerging other CMS issues. Next slide. So it is not that anyone has published a framework called the five stages of COVID. Running the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition and being a co-leader of the fight is in us for convalescent plasma and hyperimmune globulin, I've just seen that there are about five work streams that seem to be occupying our time in this march through the present period. That we started with isolation. We asked, how do we buy enough Clorox how do we get enough masks? How do we ensure that we reduce the spread, flatten the curve? And there's a series of technologies around that. And I'll go into that in a moment. Then we began to venture outside a bit. And we said, well, we really need to get back to work and back to life, which means that there are exposures and therefore we need testing. And when tests are positive, we need contact tracing. 
And there are various technologies and policies emerging in that front, uh, mostly on a state-by-state -state basis. And then you can see as we get cures, the remdesivirs, the dexamethasones, various other compounds being tested, there'll still be a period where we will use therapies to try to return to work and return to life before the vaccines are here, widely available. Then the vaccines will become widely available and there'll be whole other issues of who gets them first. How do you ensure they're administered appropriately if there are multiple doses? How do you track who is vaccinated and not as we use potentially new apps to show our laboratory and vaccine results ensuring we're safe to gather? And then how do we get to a new normal of getting back into airports and restaurants and what are the kinds of technologies we're going to use? So if that's the five stages that we've had to go through, and really at the moment, we're really in that pre-vaccine return to work stage, let's look at some of the tech and some of the policies involved. So next slide. Back in March and April, oh, oh, hmm, there should have been a slide before that one, but maybe not. I'm sorry, maybe I missed something. No problem, I, I can just talk through it. Back in March and April, when we were in the isolation phase, one of the things we were very concerned about is supply demand of PPE. Who has the masks and how do we get them into the right hands? And we didn't really have the IT that would be necessary to understand inventories of at hospital level PPE and ventilators and such things. So what we did in those earliest days of March and April is started to put in systems to monitor supply and demand and to think about equitable distribution. And I only tell you that because what we thought was a set of IT and policy problems solved in March and April is likely to come back in the November, December timeframe because we're gonna to start to see as hospitals exceed capacity, PPE becomes scarce once again, that we're gonna to have to revisit a lot of those dashboards. And I would encourage you, speaking of dashboards, to go look at the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition Decision Makers Dashboard. And so if you go to c19hcc.org, you will see right at the top, you can click on Decision Makers Dashboard. And for every county in the United States, we will reflect on the state of that county, where it is with various policies, and then show you emerging infection, infection and death rates, and what are some of the recommendations based on best practices for every county in the United States with regard to schools, opening and closing of restaurants and bars, et cetera. So, so much of that work we did in the beginning of the pandemic, but we'll revisit it, I am sure. Well, let's talk about testing. What we have seen between March, April and today is the emergence of many different kinds of tests. We had PCR, but then we've developed antibody and antigen and molecular testing and lateral flow assays. And there's an emerging T cell assay that you'll see coming to the market in about three months that has a 99% sensitivity and specificity, a really good test. Because part of the problem is, so, hey, Anthony, you woke up this morning, you're feeling kind of tired. You go out and get a test it's negative. Does that mean anything? <laughs> right? And, and so, you know, there's a, a kind of a bit of a challenge in these various kinds of testing of understanding who should get what test 
for what purpose and what can you do with it? And that's why we need some additional tools. And there are many companies working on such tools. An example of the kind of tools we're talking about. Anthony wakes up, has certain signs and symptoms, goes to a phone, launches an app, fills out the, uh, did I lose my sense of smell and taste? You know, do I have a fever? You know, was I exposed to someone that I know? And then that is used to summon an instant telehealth visit, where then a physician can say, I've reviewed your questionnaire. I believe that based on what you've said, this is the test you need, a PCR test, an antibody test, a home test. It's going to be thoughtful based on your circumstance, the level of infection in your community. And then once that test is done, which may be a lab-based test or a home-gathered sample or a home-run test, then there'll be a result. And then the question is, how do you record that result? Well, again, many companies working on the idea that when you get a test, the result comes to your phone and then is shown in a non-repudiatable way with a QR code so that it isn't easy for somebody to just fake a test result. And then you can imagine as we start to think of this next period we're going into, it's gonna be important for a variety of employers or a variety of other social settings to be able to walk in and say, you know, look, my phone tells me I have had a negative PCR test in the last 72 hours and here's a QR code and it's trustworthy which is why you know, so many companies, including some of the big tech companies, are working on the components that are necessary to support that kind of workflow. One of the things that of course will also be interesting is some of these apps will do interpretation of the laboratory tests like lateral flow assays using computer vision technology so that the human doesn't have to, you know, Anthony, I'm sort of reflecting on early pregnancy tests Oh, is that a plus or is that a minus? You know, I can't quite tell. <laughs> and in, in fact, it would be accurate because sometimes it's ambiguous. But if computer vision can look at a lateral flow assay and say, looking at the color and using an algorithm, this is a positive and it is a this is a negative test and record that and put it as part of the workflow, that's going to be important. So lots of EUAs, these notion of using these various tests in an uh, authorized fashion because there's emergency use, uh, certainly coming from the FDA. There have been some home tests already approved, uh, others that are just in the pipeline. So we'll see over these next few weeks, a lot of energy putting in, put into expanding testing possibilities and the workflow of ordering, resulting, and non-repudiation. Next slide. As we think of contact tracing, so contact tracing can take many forms. I mean, traditional contact tracing has been somebody knocks on your door, you know, and figures out who was exposed where, and isolation is done based on a chain of friends reported to a person. But that isn't very scalable. And especially when you look at the current surge curves, it almost exceeds the capacity for public health to do contact tracing and recommend isolation. So folks probably know that Google and Apple have worked together 
on creating an open source, what is called GAIN, the Google Apple Exposure Notification Protocol. That is a privacy preserving protocol for contact tracing that does not use GPS. And so because Anthony and I have been friends for 20 years, I can pick on him. So Anthony, you know, we've just installed a contact tracing app on your phone that uses GPS. I see you were in a bar this morning at 9 (laughs) a.m. You know, you could understand how GPS would be a very challenging measure. It's not very accurate, hard to know if you were really close to someone. It discloses a location, which, you know, could be a privacy problem for a whole lot of reasons. So Google said, no, no GPS or Wi-Fi. In fact, what we're going to use is proximity of your phone to another phone. And it does not require we understand who you are or where you are, simply that your phone was near another phone. And so that's a really intriguing idea. And as folks know, on both iOS and Android, you'll see an option in settings to turn on the Google Apple Exposure Notification Protocol. And you know, completely up to you, but I would highly recommend it because it truly is reporting nothing but Bluetooth tokens of phones around you. And if one of those Bluetooth tokens ends up being in the phone of someone who gets a positive lab test, simply by association of Bluetooth tokens, you will get an amber alert on your phone suggesting that you should probably be tested because you had a positive exposure. There are state level apps that will access this Google Apple exposure notification protocol. There is a generic app created by Google and Apple, but there are additional apps that have been created by various private companies and each state adopts one app for simplicity. And so you've seen about a dozen states adopt so far, but there's a need for increased public awareness to understand this really is privacy preserving And if we're going to deal with understanding this pandemic, its spread and isolation for those who have been exposed, we really need to start thinking about more automation. Excellent. So as we move from the notion of testing and contact tracing to pre-vaccine return to work, of course there's dexamethasone, remdesivir, There is the idea of using, I'm not mentioning any product or service I endorse, by the way, Anthony, you know, the Regeneron or Lilly monoclonal antibodies, convalescent plasma, hyperimmune globulin, there's all these things that are evolving. But here's the challenge. How do you know what works? And that is there may be evidence of safety Right, we certainly did that in convalescent plasma. We administered 105,000 patients convalescent plasma and determined it was safe. But measuring efficacy, that's harder than through a, you know, the kind of early access program approach that we, we did for convalescent plasma. Because as you'd want is two cohorts, you know, a control group and, and, a, and a group for which you get the, uh, the medication, look at the difference in, in, in morbidity, mortality, and such. 
But one of the challenges, I'll be honest with you, of doing some of these pre-vaccine testing uh, is the ethical issue. If we've already seen that it appears that certain monoclonal antibodies at a certain dose seem to reduce severity of disease, can you really ethically now randomize people to placebo? <laughs> and so I just tell you all this because we need to gather real world evidence to make sure it's safe and efficacious at a time when we're moving fast and clinical trials aren't easy to coordinate. And there's two other comments on this. Through the fight is in us, we have put together this national coalition and these national coalitions have started to gather real world evidence in really intriguing ways. We worked with Google, we work with Apple, we work with Epic, we work with Cerner, you know, ways that we can gather anonymized data in non-traditional ways to start to understand something about response to medications or severity of disease. And for example, early on, we gathered from about 2000 hospitals, the administration data on anti-malarial drugs. Because, you know, is hydroxychloroquine good or bad? We didn't do a clinical trial, but we were able to look at thousands of patients who had received it, case matched with thousands of patients who did not. And by gathering data from Epic and Cerner run by individual CIOs at individual institutions, because EHR companies don't have access to the data, we were able to show that actually the anti-malarial drugs don't help. And so I just want to emphasize this interesting challenge we have. Yes, we need to move fast, but we need to gather real world evidence. We'll do it in non-traditional ways like we have with the EHR companies or big tech. And ideally we'll need uh, better clinical trial coordination across this country because what you're starting to see, you've probably seen it, is that there are just dozens of trials for the same medication in different sites that are having trouble enrolling enough patients because there are just too many of them. So one of the things that we recommended in a STAT article a couple of weeks ago is the need for setting up clinical trial coordination oversight for this country on COVID-19 cure evaluation. Fewer trials with larger number of enrollees to get us the evidence we need when it's ethical. So that's where the cures are. And now as we think of post-vaccine, there are going to be a whole lot of other interesting issues. We know the Pfizer vaccine, two doses, has to be kept in negative 80 Fahrenheit refrigerators. The Moderna vaccine, you know, both are going to be 95 or so percent efficacious. But how do we know who should get what vaccine? How are we going to distribute them? Where are you going to find your negative 80 degree Fahrenheit refrigerators in a rural setting? How do you ensure the second dose is given if it's a two-dose vaccine? And just like with laboratory data, how do you prove that you got a vaccine? Because let's just imagine, I'm gonna make this up, Anthony, that Ticketmaster is going to have now a COVID workflow for you to attend an event where you need to bring to that event proof of laboratory testing, we talked about that, or proof of vaccine administration, you know, within a 
certain window. You've got it two weeks ago and you're probably good to go. So we will need a national standard for the administration of vaccines and proof of completion of the multiple doses if needed. And how are we going to do that? Josh Mandel at Microsoft, one of the great leaders in the fire and smart on fire movement, has worked to create an implementation guide based on fire called Health Card. And the idea with Health Card is that when a vaccine is administered, a record of that administration is kept in a secure registry. And then the health card is a QR code displayed on that secure, from the data in that secure registry. So you could go to a event and say, you know, look, I have my health card and it is safe to let me in. And so fascinating, as I mentioned about working together and how my spirits are lifted by working together. About oh, three, four weeks ago, and six of us got together and said, don't you think we should have a national standard for proof of vaccine? And it was a member of Google, and a member of Microsoft, a member of Apple, and a couple of folks who are clinical. One week later, we got, had a follow-up call. 95 organizations, including the CDC, the FDA, ONC, CMS, and every major tech company joined that call, all unified on adopting a single standard and a single workflow for a proof of vaccine. So that project's still ongoing. You know, we'll certainly be a couple more weeks as we uh, get complete consensus on implementation guides and how is the registry hosted? Is it at a state level? Is it a federal level? Is it your Department of Public Health? Is it the CDC? You know, things still to be worked out. But I just tell you that post-vaccine, the idea of getting you the right vaccine, ensuring it was administered appropriately, and getting proof of vaccine is going to be part of our workflow. And then as we start to think of what the new normal is going to look like, this is, you know, Anthony, where I have to be a little bit realistic. We have 7.7 billion people on the planet. And you can go to the next slide. Um, and if you just think about that for a moment, we'll need about 12 billion doses of vaccine for 7.7 billion people. And we're gonna have a challenge. There are going to be a number who say, oh, I don't trust that mm -hmm. vaccine or trust that therapy or trust the contact tracing. And how are we gonna get through this pandemic if we don't see more than 30 or 40% of the population taking a vaccine? The answer is we need to build trust and public awareness to get through this. And what we found in putting these coalitions together where it's as I mentioned, government, academia, and industry working together in steering committees of co-equals with hegemony of none, <laughs> that it has created more than, oh, do you trust the government? Do you trust your doctor? Do you trust your payer? Much more than that. Do you trust that representatives of society, over 1,200 organizations, including community organizers and religious organizations, and those who will engage, you know, stakeholders in local settings, if they've all come together and are unified around an approach, 
doesn't that seem like a reasonable recommendation that you too should trust in the approach? Some fascinating observations and just convalescent plasma and we had encouraged donation of this cure. We had some major political figures across this country make statements and we saw a 3% increase in donations. We asked The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, <laughs> to do a public service announcement and tweet, and we had an 85% increase in donations. So again, I just tell you that our experience has been, if we're gonna get this vaccine administered and contact tracing widely implemented and a universal standard for lab and vaccine proof, Community engagement is really key. It has to be very grassroots and not top down. And as we form more coalitions, work with various transition team members and work with various advisory boards, community engagement with a coalition of folks working for the benefit of all is what we're recommending. Next slide. Uh, I think that's your final slide, the okay, experiences. Great. Well, maybe then just some closing comments, and then we'll open up for Q&A. Over the last 24 hours, I've been on a lot of calls with government folk and industry folk. And we've been talking about some of the kinds of changes we're going to need, such as reimbursement. If we're going to deal with new models of care delivery, like a serious and complex care in your home, we better ensure that there's parity for delivering what is going to be the same complex care, but in an alternative setting to a bricks and mortar hospital setting. If we're going to deliver different kinds of what I'll call digital diagnostics or digital therapeutics as we enhance virtual care, we better have very similar reimbursement to on-premise care. So I just tell you that as we look at the period of these last 10 months and we look forward to this next year, there is going to be a lot of changes in reimbursement policy to supplement the technologies we're implementing for virtual care. And I think this new normal is going to be that that virtual care will have proved its effectiveness, its quality and its safety. And there will be a cultural expectation going forward that we're going to deliver more care at a distance of all acuities. And the good news is the technology is here. The policy has already evolved some and the policy will continue to evolve ensuring parity and reimbursement, relaxation, certain requirements for licensure and site of service and documentation to ensure everything I've talked about today can get delivered to those who need it in an equitable fashion. And Anthony, maybe last thing that I'll reflect on, as we develop all these new technologies, it's really important that we think about disparities of care and that we make sure that we're delivering these solutions to those who need them most and not necessarily based on technological literacy or access to broadband income, education, language, or race, ethnicity. And so a lot of the work that I'll also be doing over these next couple of months is doing significant data analytics to understand disparities of care and bias in things like AI algorithms to ensure that we go forward over the next year 
driven by equity. So with that, Anthony, let me turn it back to you and happy to go through question and answer. All right, we'll definitely do that. I do wanna put out a little poll question here. Uh, we just launched it. So if everybody wants, we get a sense of how people are feeling. D this is an agree or disagree. Despite technologies and workflows that were implemented in the spring, I am deeply concerned about our ability to withstand the burgeoning COVID surge. I just want to get a sense of, of the anxiety level out there and how people who are deeply enmeshed in healthcare are feeling about the coming few months. Um, so we'll take a look at that in a moment. Um, definitely send your, send your questions or comments in, and we're looking forward to getting to those. Uh, first question, Dr. Halamka. I've heard about an AI-based test that listens to a cough and diagnoses COVID at a 95% accuracy. Is that real? Sure. So there is a company called Hyfe, and at H-Y-F-E. It's founded by Peter Small and Julian Serco. Now, let me just give you the quick background on those two characters and tell you what they did. Peter Small ran the global TB organization for the Gates Foundation. And Julian ran a company called Proof of Impact, which was helping non-governmental organizations ensure their investments, their philanthropic spend, actually delivered the cures that were intended. I traveled the world with these two folks extensively. And what we realized, especially in resource poor settings, it can be very challenging to deliver diagnostic testing. So they had an idea. What if they recorded cough of every patient who tested positive with a credible ground truth verifiable diagnostic test for TB or for COVID? And could you take a, basically a sonogram, you know, it's the, the voice print, <laughs> the thing that you said into your phone, a recording of your cough or your voice and be able to predict COVID-19 infection. So again, not advertising any company or service, but check out HYFE. They have done this AI algorithm for cough and COVID diagnosis. I don't know the exact AUC, but yes, it certainly does seem to be a modality uh, that can be used, especially in resource poor settings to suggest that you have COVID or need additional COVID testing. And there are other algorithms in development. Mayo is currently working on a lead one ECG algorithm to diagnose COVID-19 from your Apple Watch or your Fitbit or your AliveCore device. Because it turns out the spike protein on COVID bonds to H2 receptors. The heart is covered with H2 receptors. And when you're infected, you actually get subtle changes to your ECG that humans can't detect but algorithms can. So absolutely watch for these emerging kinds of new digital diagnostics, but make sure you also study the literature and that there are academic papers that validate them so you understand where they're suitable for purpose and really what is their sensitivity and specificity. Great, well, we got lots of great questions coming in. So next question, is a national patient ID off the congressional agenda? Again, isn't COVID tracking, testing, vaccination, a valid reason to push for one? 
So what you're seeing is real interest in a national patient matching strategy as opposed to a national healthcare ID. And uh, you'll see there have been a couple of recent papers and articles on that topic. Um, uh, probably the best report that has been written is in by the Pew Charitable Trust. And that was written by a guy named Ben Moscovich. And so it's available on the internet, so you can take a look at it. So yes, lots of policy discussion about how to match records, but still no notion of creating a, I'm gonna give you a digital certificate at birth. That at the moment isn't being discussed. All right, very good. Any news or insights into the 21st Century Cures Act and compliance with the program? So remember the 21st Century Cures had a whole variety of stipulations that resulted in such things as the interoperability rule or the information blocking rule. You probably saw those are deferred until April. So yes, we all need to plan on compliance with such things as making more data available to patients themselves through APIs, including notes. And you know, I certainly believe there's gonna be this emerging ecosystem in 2021 where there'll be more and more data exchange and stewardship through the patient, where then the patient can contribute their data to registries or to medical research. So at the moment, deferred, April will be compliance dates. And as you look at the compliance, you'll see that that's actually staged over years to comply with the you know, stipulations in both those rules. Okay. Uh, if healthcare workers turn on the Bluetooth notification protocol, won't they potentially be getting tons of Amber alerts? That's a really interesting question. Uh, you know, I, to be honest, uh, I guess maybe the reason I haven't seen that to date is the way that the server side of this thing works is you have to have greater than 15 minutes of proximity within six feet. Now, this works on Bluetooth signal strength. So the six feet is kind of approximate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but I would say generally the idea that, you know, you're, you're sitting at a bar when you're six feet you know, feet from a person for two hours is different than a healthcare worker walks into a room, is with you for a minute and leaves. Mm -hmm. So I think to date, I've not heard about a lot of false positives, but you know, it's a fascinating question. I'll actually raise it with the Path Check Foundation, which is the nonprofit that's done a lot of work in this area. Very good. Uh, next question. Some are saying that payment parity for virtual care should not be the same as on-site due to overhead costs. What is the right parity for virtual care services? Well, I would just say that the overhead costs are different, right? So if we are going to now be delivering care at a distance, but it requires remote patient monitoring in the home, and it requires AI algorithms, and it requires a set of dashboards and workflows and care managers and uh, people looking at social determinants of health, at least the discussion that I have heard is, for the moment, the parity is going to be near equal. Okay, and maybe over time, as we figure this out, and there's an opportunity to reduce the reimbursement for virtual care by something, you know, 25%, because you don't have the bricks and mortar costs 
But for the moment, especially in the startup phase, I'm operating numerous virtual care facilities. And I can tell you at our earliest of stages where we haven't achieved economies of scale, you really still need parity to get going. Mm -hmm. Okay, very good. Um, let's talk a little bit about the vaccine distribution. Um, the issue of the freezers you mentioned, uh, those specialty freezers, we had a comment come in. Uh, most laboratories and blood banks throughout the country have those freezers and they're monitored and in service. Um, there could be different types of vaccines coming out. Some may not require the specialty freezers. Uh, I've seen jokes on Twitter from CIOs saying, how do I return my specialty freezers I just ordered? Because now maybe I don't need them. Um, but take it at a high level. If a lot of vaccine distribution is going to be going through health systems and hospitals, well, first of all, is it? And if so, what what do you want the CIOs to be thinking about to prepare for that responsibility? So this is a really important societal question. Uh, so I this morning was on a meeting with a number of national leaders thinking again about equitable distribution. And that is, if we have a very limited supply, how do you ensure that those who are most in need get access to the therapies or vaccines they require to return to health? And most in need is going to have to be based on objective criteria. So I'll just tell you one of the things I'm working on with a whole variety of folks across this country is building the models so that we can allocate these various new therapies and vaccines in a completely rules-based fashion based on evidence. So I think the CIOs are gonna have this, this interesting challenge if the decision support that you will need to provide your, your providers. So they are taking whatever is delivered to your hospital and getting it to those who are most needy. So next couple of weeks, you'll see much more on that. Yeah, and you get into some sort of intricate and interesting questions about um, the, the, uh, the onus on the health system to educate potential person receiving a vaccine about why it, it would be good for them. Are they responsible for that? Or are they just responsible for offering it? And do they have to track whether or not someone has been offered and declined? Has it been offered? Has it been explained? Have they declined? Because otherwise it's, okay, there's certain people that are not accepting the vaccine, but do we need to track those kind of things? How, how detailed do we need to get? Yeah, and these are all really interesting questions of policy that are still a work in process. Mm -hmm. Because as I said, I mean, at the moment we're looking, you know, based on surveys at 40% of the population saying I'm going to get vaccinated. And what that means is that, you know, certainly not gonna get us to herd immunity anytime soon, that mask wearing will probably go on for three or four more years. <laughs> and so I think we all just need to band together and just let's look at the evidence, let's look at the science, and let's try to get as many of our patients with the appropriate vaccine, it's going to bring them wellness. And it will be a coalition level and local level educational effort. Uh, if, if elective surgeries are canceled again, hospitals are gonna find themselves under an even greater financial pressure than they are right now. Um, 
And so what are your thoughts around, you know, eventually that's going to hit the IT budget, right? The, the overall revenue goes that eventually hits the IT budget. Uh, any thoughts for IT leaders on um, doing more with less, that typical expression that could be very accurate for the coming year? Well, you know, certainly I have a feeling that based on what is going to be a set of additional closures, just based on the numbers, it's not political, it's just based on the numbers, that there will be deferral of certain procedures. And it will be likely, I'm guessing, that more stimulus dollars will need to flow if we're going to support organizations through what will be a, a, dec a decreased economic um, times ahead. And so in the, in the short term, you know, what do you do? Well, ask yourself, can you achieve better efficiencies, lower cost, as you migrate more and more to the cloud? And you know, I've been a big, big proponent of moving, if you can, to services that are procured rather than infrastructure that's provisioned. And it'll be a delicate conversation with the CFO. It's the difference between capital dollars and operating dollars, total cost of ownership over time. So much of what I've done over these last couple of months is really look to what we do today and what we want tomorrow. And is it really cost effective to move to the cloud? Will service levels increase and efficiency increase? And the answer in most circumstances has been yes. It doesn't solve every problem for you. And you know, there are certain times where you'll want edge computing or local computing to reduce risk, but moving to services was certainly an opportunity to reduce some costs. All right, next question. What's your take on the chance for direct government payment for testing, home monitoring, vaccine administration, et cetera, due to the pandemic? Or do you think patients, health systems, and payers will have to eat it? Oh, um, based again on conversations this morning <laughs> I had with policymakers, uh, there was a discussion this morning on the appropriate reimbursement of monoclonal antibodies. And the notion that that had to be set at a level that would cover the costs involved. So certainly it seems to me that we are seeing private and public re reimbursement for these uh, needed therapies under discussion now and the direction looks like they will be funded. All right, very good. Um, we are getting close to the end here. I want to look at the poll results and get your thoughts on them. So we're gonna share those results now. Um, you know, and I tried to make this a pretty extreme statement, um, deeply concerned. 84% uh, are deeply concerned about the next coming few months. Um, that's pretty high number. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety out there. So uh, just as a parting thought, what is your message to the IT leaders on the line today that are pretty stressed out about what's coming up? Sure. And so make it local. Start with your own family. Uh, Thanksgiving at Unity Farm Sanctuary will be my wife and I alone gathered with family by Zoom. I mean, we just don't think that in 2020 it's prudent, even if you want it, to bring your family together in proximity. At Unity Farm Sanctuary, we require 
everyone entering the property to be masked and hand them out if they are unmasked. And there are no exceptions made ever. And we social distance always. And so all I can suggest is if you do this with your own family, you do it with your own local company, you start with the measures that are non-pharmaceutical interventions that we know will work, that is our best chance to get through this and then rely on each other because it's these coalitions that help us take action that will get us those cures and vaccines, get us the reimbursement policy we've been talking about and get us to a better day. And uh, you'll see a number of letters going out to a number of companies over the weekend and the Biden transition team and a lot of energy to just getting us through these next couple of months. So I'm deeply concerned as well, but I know we're going to get to a better place working together. I just want to follow up with an additional question on that. That's a, a personal message um, from a professional point of view. Uh, I'm thinking of issues. Now, it really separates in my mind between, I think there's a big separation between clinical staff and IT staff. There's different issues there. There's different burnout issues that could be happening. Obviously, the clinical, very unique, um, very difficult. Different for IT teams. You're a, a IT leader and a clinician. Um, so let's focus on the IT teams for now. For someone leading an IT team, are you worried about burnout? What are the issues you're looking at to make sure your team is, is functioning well? So I'm going to, Anthony, answer that question in a really strange way you don't expect. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. So I came up with a list of five best practice guidelines for IT and technology staff working at a distance, which is, first, we ban all email on Saturdays. Mm, I like that. Don't send it. Don't read it. We're not going to hold anyone accountable for anything that is transacted on a Saturday. You got to build some space. <laughs> Don't schedule more than six hours of Zoom a day. I got to tell you, I mean, I do this. And, it, and once you hit six hours, you're so emotionally wrecked and fatigued. You can't be creative. So break it up. Get phone calls. Uh, take a walk. <laughs> You know, there, there has to be also, we know in a time of urgency, everybody feels like they need to run a sprint every day. You can't sprint for a year. <laughs> and you have to have this empathy where you're able to say, okay, you know, we'll have a sprint, but then we will have a mm -hmm. relaxing time because we're in this for the very long haul. You need to be kind to each other because it's a time of heightened anxiety and screaming at each other is just not going to make it any better. And I know so many of the things that we always talk about have a political angle on them. And so I try to depoliticize mm -hmm. everything as much as I can and just say, we'll take action based on the numbers. It's all going to be based on data and based on rules. It's not a lifestyle statement or a political statement. I tell you all those things because that's what you need to do to keep your IT staff, who's largely working remotely, from burnout. Uh, the Zoom fatigue is real. 
and the level of responsibility we all feel to get through this is high. And unless we are caring for each other and ourselves, we are going to burn out. Well, I think that's absolutely fantastic advice. I don't think there was anything strange about that. So really, really excellent uh, parting words for everyone. 84% deeply concerned. So let's get through it. As you said, let's get through it together over the next few months. Um, and then the vaccines hopefully come to the rescue. Uh, regarding continuing education, you could use the certificate of attendance, uh, the last slide in this deck uh, for your CEU needs. Uh, you'll get an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready for viewing. If you want to sponsor an event with us, you can visit our website or reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team. And you can go to our website to register for upcoming uh, events and webinars. With that, I want to thank our good friend, uh, Dr. John Holomka, for doing this event and taking his time, which is in high demand. Uh, and we hope he takes his own advice and doesn't do Zoom for more than six hours today. Uh, but we'll see. Um, and I want to thank you, our attendees, for, for joining. And with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks so much.